This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 119, Comic Reviews for the week of Wednesday, November the 13th. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 119, the Comic Reviews episode for the week of Wednesday, November the 13th. Uh, we got a, a lot of books came out this past week. Uh, this is obviously our review show where we look at books that did come out in the past week, the, this being the week of November the 13th. Um, as we speak, uh, as at least as I record this, this is the week of, uh, sorry, it is Monday, the November the 18th. Um, so I finally got a chance to read a little bit more DC Comics this past week. Um, didn't actually, I, I was going through the list, and I, obviously, I've, as I've said in recent episodes, I haven't had as much time lately to read as many comics as I would have liked. I'm hoping uh, after Christmas, maybe I'm able to read more comics on a more regular basis, but because I wasn't, um, often I have to kind of pick and choose carefully on the, the, the issues I'm going to have a chance to read, so I can talk about them on the podcast. And I found that there was more and more books this time around that I was kind of like, yeah, I, I, a lot of Marvel books where I was kind of like, I, I'm okay if I don't read this. Um... Partially, and I, I, I think that uh, because DC had so many zero-year offerings this week, I think it made it easier in some cases to read books that maybe I haven't really read a lot of recently or fallen out of love with or have just fallen behind on. But having a, basically a one-shot dedicated to the past of that book made it easier to just kind of jump in as opposed to an ongoing, like, you know, an ongoing thing at Marvel where it might be issue five or six or something. And if I haven't read the previous issue, it might feel like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to understand what's going to happen, etc. So I think that's kind of what gave DC a bit of the, uh, the, uh, the edge this, this week. Uh, the first book I'm going to take a look at is, uh, all new X-Men number 18. Um, I'm going to give this about an eight out of 10. Um, the art remains strong and solid um, by Imminent. Not that that's a big surprise at this point. Um, I do feel like this is kind of a weird issue because I feel like Bendis has a lot of things he wants to say with the all-new X-Men, especially now that he's brought them away from the Eugene Gray School. Um, so there's a lot of interesting concepts that he could play with and kind of exploring the team dynamics in the wake of Battle of the Atom. Um, but at the same time, it kind of feels like a weird placeholder issue because... We now know, because of NYCC, etc., um, that we're, we're having a crossover coming up between the Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, the All-New X-Men. So it's, it just kind of feels like we're getting kind of a placeholder stories until we get there. Um, anyways, that being said, and plus we also get the debut of the new costumes for the X-Men, which, I don't know, I guess they're kind of growing on me a little. I just don't... I don't know, I really love the original look. The original costumes look just fantastic. I, I don't know, something about them. Um, they're, they're very simple, but striking. And it's a little unfortunate that we don't have them anymore. And it's very random that, they, that we just kind of get new costumes like that um, in this issue, which I thought was a little a little too bad. Because, <laughs> I, 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 as I said, I, I like their original costumes. Um... You know, speaking of the actual plot, um, just kind of flipping through the issue here. So you start off with, obviously, Olnu is in a very different place because now the original five are uh, have gone to live with uh, the Uncanny X-Men at the old Weapon X facility that they're living at. So you start off with Magic bringing the five home, um, or should I say four plus Kitty Pride, And they meet up with uh, Cyclops at the new Xavier School with Angels there. Um, obviously Magneto's there and all the rest. Uh, then Cyclops kind of gives him a tour and, um, 
it's kind of there's a weird little like Cyclops Kitty Pride moment, which I thought was really inappropriate considering how they've been on the opposite sides. And Kitty's obviously favored Wolverine's side, and hasn't really been a big fan of uh, Cyclops in a little bit. Yet here they have this weird chummy moment where. He's saying, like, you know, not bad, you know, in terms of picking Weapon X, a place that Wolverine would never seem to look of, look for them at. And Kitty kind of being like, that's why you're Scott Summers. She's like, I have my moments. And I'm just like, that's usually inappropriate. Like, they, they're they not chummy like that. First of all, they are on a different kind of age wavelength. She was 14 when he was, like, in his late 20s. Uh, so there's a, a significant age difference. It just kind of felt really stark and odd. Um, there is some great stuff here. With, uh, I forget, the new students, I really don't know their names that well. I guess the Eva Bell character. Uh, we have her interacting with Bobby Drake, and I actually really like the whole segment because it was kind of fairly interesting to just see how Bobby Drake is dealing with um, everything he's dealt with. You might become this ice god with a beard, you might also be a weird ice monster. Like, it could be many different things. He's not really sure what to believe in and what to think of his future. Um, you have Jean Grey getting into a bit of a spat with uh, the uh, Stepford Cuckoos. You have Magneto and uh, Beast having a little bit of a moment, which is odd. Then you have Beast kind of dealing with Jean Grey because uh, they obviously had their kiss recently, and then she went off with Summers during Battle of the Atom. Not a big fan of that. Don't care. Uh, just was not a big fan of reading that. Uh, then there's this panel a couple pages later where it's really awkward just because of the facial expressions on Magic and Kitty Pride's faces. First of all, is Magic ever cold? Because she's always wearing ridiculous clothes in, the, in like the in very cold parts of Canada by the looks of it. Anyways, there's a weird spot where the, her and Kitty are looking opposite directions from each other, and it's just a very odd... Uh, I don't know. Their faces look almost like mirror versions of each other. I don't know. It was just a weird image. Something about it very... It's almost seemed very Betty and Veronica to me, and I don't know why. Um, then you have uh, Magic kind of dealing with what she's had to deal with recently, uh, with her, her brother... And she also goes to hug uh, Kitty, which definitely does feel out of out of context. Which are not out of context, out of character. Um, and then you have Magic kind of changing the costumes for the uh, original X Men, which was fine. And then we, at the end, kind of get a glimpse that there's something something else is going to be happening, and they have to. There might be a, a bit of a danger that they might be getting involved in. And and apparently everyone in the original X Men is just hot for Gene. Originally it was not Beast, but now he is. So. Uh, I gave it an 8 out of 10. It's not the strongest issue, but um, the artwork is pretty strong. We're getting some solid characterization, even if I don't necessarily like all the characterization. At least we are getting some stuff. Like, again, just because I don't happen to like the, what they're doing with Beast and Jean Grey, I get it, and from a writing standpoint, it's not written poorly. I just don't personally respond to it all that well. Uh, but I can't say it's poorly done. Uh, next up is Batgirl number 25. Uh, it's interesting that you know, it's the 25th issue, instead of doing anything actually special or even continuing the ongoing storyline in the Batgirl book, we instead have the Zerier tie-in, which really just kind of goes back to the past and has nothing to do with current continuity. Uh, it's written by Margaret Bennett with uh, artwork by Fernando Pissarin, so at least there's some artistic, uh, um, what's the word, consistency. That being said, although theoretically it's by an artist who's done work on this book before, I thought his artwork here was just atrocious. Uh, the ages for Batgirl and James Gordon Jr. don't seem to line up that well with how we see them six years later. I mean, six years later, and the way that James Gordon Jr. is, is illustrated here is like, like a little kid, and yet he's much more of an adult in the current continuity. 
Um, the issue is well written, but I just found the artwork extremely distracting. It wasn't very well done, but I did like the the idea that you have this storm approaching Gotham, all the powers out, and you have uh, Barbara Gordon trying to basically step up and be a hero and take care of her brother James, and um, have her dealing with this guy that she meets, and you know he seems like a nice guy who's out to protect everyone, and so they're. they're Keep running, protect the homestead is basically the message of the issue. Try to protect her family and the people she comes around, uh, comes and meets. And um, just when they think they might be safe, uh, they're not safe because they end up getting uh, basically not hijacked, uh, robbed, highway robbery by the person who they thought was protecting them or helping to protect them. And she kind of stands up for herself and kind of takes the fight to him. It's not a bad issue. It's just, in fact, it's a good issue in terms of the writing. I thought it was a strong way of showing Barbara Gordon's inclinations towards being a hero and her um, strong moral compass when it comes to protecting people. But that being said, the artwork just really left a lot to be desired. It was surprisingly bland. Uh, the, the faces and the details were really, at times, non-existent. Um, found it really distracting how poor at times the artwork was, which is why I'm only giving it a six and a half. Uh, if it wasn't for the artwork, I think it would have been maybe more of an eight, maybe even a nine. Like, it was really, I thought, a strong story. I just found the artwork very distracting and not very engaging. Um, next up, we have Batman number 25. Now, I think I missed the last issue before this. Uh, that being said, there's not a lot to really have to understand here. You just have to kind of know what's going on in the current kind of storyline, more or less. Uh, if you've read any of the times, you'll get that. Uh, I didn't like this all that much. I think, uh, let me just check my ratings. Uh, I believe I'm going to, yeah, I was going to give this um, a six and a half. I'm actually going to downgrade that to a six. Uh, a big part of that is the artwork. I found this is not Greg Capullo's art, best artwork. Uh, I found it very distracting. I don't like the way, how effeminate a lot of his characters look. There's something about the characters, especially Bruce. I mean, I don't like the weird, like the short hair on him. I just, I, I find the artwork really bland at times. Uh, I'm surprised because I really liked Capullo's artwork, especially in Death of the Family. Here, I just think there's just as a lot to be desired here. And even like, the, the kind of Batmobile-ish uh, thing that he, Batman's using here, I just found ludicrous. Um, the whole... It, it felt like the storyline started in a much more grounded uh, perspective in terms of, you know, Scotland and I has been telling these very street-level kind of stories. And yet now we move to a spot where it's anything but street-level and it feels very grotesque. You have the creature um, that's been kind of messing with people, this the Dr. Death kind of character, Um you have, you know, again, Bruce now trying to focus on Nigma, um, And there's a lot of talking here. There's a lot of talking heads. There's a moment where Bruce Wayne and um, Commissioner Gordon, or sorry, whatever Gordon is at this point, kind of coming uh, face-to-face with each other on the way in a state, which I thought really made me wonder how good of a detective Gordon could possibly be. And it also made me wonder about Bruce, because I just... I don't know, he just doesn't seem like Batman at all, and it doesn't even feel like this is really like a year one or even year zero, as it's, as the story says, version of Batman. Um, he just, something about it just seems off. I'm not really liking the way that Bruce is being written. I don't like this version of Lucius Fox, per se. I don't like how young Bruce looks, especially given how he looks in the regular book. Um, and, yeah, and again, that, that last kind of, one of those last few pages with that weird, messed-up-looking Dr. Death character... 
um, it really took me out of the story. It felt like this could have been a much more grounded tale, and all the other Zerior tie-ins are much more grounded, and yet this is something completely off the wall, and I just, I don't know, it took me out of the story. Um, I'm only going to give it a, a six. Um, yeah, I wasn't really into it. Next up is Forever Evil Arkhamor number two. I gave this a five. Um, this I just didn't really care. Um, I Peter J. Tomasi and Scott Eden are a great creative team. I mean, I really like the writing by Tomasi usually and the artwork by uh, Scott Eden as well. But there's something about this isn't didn't quite work for me. Um, I, the whole idea of having like all the man bats that doesn't really ring true for where man bat has been in the main Detective Comics book. Um, seeing him kind of infecting all these people and then them all taking to the streets basically to uh, attack others. I, it just didn't seem very accurate to the, how that character has been portrayed recently. Uh, I did like how Gordon was written. Uh, I thought he, Gordon was written quite well. And having him in the, in the Penguin, it was interesting. Um, I don't like this use of Bane. It felt very movie-inspired, not necessarily in a good way. The art, the art on Bane at times looks very much like uh, very cartoony, uh, a little ridiculous. But then the way he's being written is much more like the movie at times. Um, I didn't really like, and then again, it, was, it felt overly talky at times, and not as much of a of a war per se. Uh, one thing I did like though there's a shot of Ragdoll. Uh, I miss Ragdoll. I miss the Secret Six. I like seeing him. Um, and just, you don't really actually get a lot of scenes. Of actually getting to see what happens in uh, in Arkham, which is unfortunate because there's it's obviously important, but we don't get to see enough of it. I really hate how Scarecrow is being uh, illustrated, especially in this book. Um, it's not necessarily Eden's fault because he's had a new artistic kind of bent taken to him recently on other occasions and during the New Fifty Two. But I found that Eden did a, a poor job of illustrating a new design, uh, and I really don't like the noose around his neck because it just seems really stupid. Um, and let's see, uh, the man, the, the, the talons, uh, being involved. I, I just feel like there's a lot of parts in this story, which actually feels like there's almost nothing to do with Forever Evil, but, um, but it still ostensibly is because of where some of the characters are in a position to be. I found this really boring. Um, uh, it was, it was hard to get through. Uh, it had characters I enjoy and like. I actually do like Bane, but I just found I didn't care for how he was being illustrated, or sorry, written at all. Um, that brings us to Justice League of America, number nine. You know, now that I realize it, I'm looking at my list, and I think I only read two Marvel books this week, which is kind of surprising for me. And I think I've read DC books, I think one, two, three, four, five, six DC books. So six DC, two Marvel, one image. So that really tells you something. Anyways, Justice League of America, number nine. You know what? I swear to God, I feel like I've already read this issue. Mainly because issue number eight was basically the same thing. Issue number eight was all about Martian Manhunter going through this weird prison, which and he was encountering the rest of the Justice League, uh, basically having these like weird, not dreams, but it almost felt like dreamlike, where they were kind of trapped in these these prisons, uh, these mental prisons, and it had uh, Martian Manhunter going throughout them. And here in this issue, you get a lot of the same. Um, it's written by Matt Kent, artwork by Tom Dernick. Uh, you start off with, you see, um, oh, and I forget his, even his name, Simon Baz is Green Lantern, uh, freaking out, and it's Martian Manhunter's there and seeing his prison. Uh, you then have uh, Madame Xanadu, uh, I guess, seeing, not, sorry, 
Martian Manhunter encounters Madame Xanadu. You have him trying to tell Stargirl to stay away, but Stargirl decides that she's going to go through all these nightmares instead. She encounters uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, she keeps going past, and then she she sees, uh, let's see, what, Stargirl sees herself? I can't even remember. Uh, you see Aquaman going up against uh, Martian Manhunter and Aquaman's version of his hell. Um, which feels like it goes on too long. You get to see Shazam and Stargirl having an interaction. Yeah, Stargirl basically is, is going through all of the uh, different prisons as she's remembering her own past and how she became a Stargirl. Um, then you have, let's see, Martian Manhunter against, what, himself? I don't even know. I I read this and I'm, I'm flipping through it. I'm like, I can't even remember where what ends up happening except for half the issue is Stargirl going through all the prisons that we've already seen, which is just kind of ridiculous. And also getting a little bit of a, a recap and flashback to Cyril's history. But I don't know. It just doesn't feel that interesting. And then it appears that Stargirl is able then to escape and it looks like she's up against uh, uh, the, you know, Deathstroke and a bunch of other villains. Uh, I just found it really boring. This issue, again, it read like something I've already read, mainly because a lot of it had things that were just done last issue, so it didn't feel like it had any real resonance or any importance. It just felt like, yeah, I've seen this before. I saw this last issue. If you were to read this in collected format, I feel like it would almost be worse. Uh, At least in serialized format, you can kind of sometimes forget some of what you just read a month ago, but in collected format, it's a lot harder because you're reading it as like successive chapters. Um, so I think that'll just be really hard to put up with when it's eventually collected. So give it a 5 out of 10. Uh, next up is Green Lantern Corps number 25. This is another zero-year tie-in. Uh, I also gave this a 5 out of 10. Um, this was just really tedious and boring. It's a John Stewart story from back when he was a Marine six years ago when he was involved at, uh, during the zero-year portion of the Gotham uh, story. He was in Gotham to assist with uh, rescuing people, and he ends up going up against um, Anarchy, and they have a bit of a, a fight against Anarchy as well as a bunch of other Marines. It's written by, I guess, Jensen. Uh, it also has a flashback story to uh, John, um, John Stewart's upbringing and his history. Anyways, the issue is written by, let's see, script by Van Jensen, co-plot by Robert Venditti, pencilers in the main sequence are by Victor Dreyunjo, sorry, Drewinu, and Ivan Fernandez, and then you had the flashback pencils are by Alan Jefferson. Uh, I found I, the artwork was not that strong. At times, the details were kind of scant. I didn't like the look of Anarchy at all. I found the, the face mask in Anarchy was extremely inconsistent, as Anarchy kind of captures the Marines who are sent to save these people who are in the stadium, and then Jen Stewart tries to escape with the other Marines, and uh, basically it's just a, a long protracted fight against our, um, Anarchy to save the people who are trapped in the stadium, and also teach them what Anarchy really is, and that they're really just there to help them. Um, the issue just takes a long time to get going, and uh, it just... I just found it was extremely tedious. It could have been half an issue. It could have been a quarter of an issue. Uh, the fact that they strung along this enti- the entire issue for a really insignificant plot beat, um, which really doesn't have to mean anything. Like I just found it didn't really give me a lot of further insight into John Stewart as a character. I don't care about John Stewart any more than I did before. I just feel like I 
paid for an issue that I didn't need to read that didn't actually affect Zerier at all. And uh, I think there's been a lot more important things that have happened to Jon Stewart's life than this particular instance six years ago, um, which would have a lot more resonance to the character and an impact on shaping who that character is. I don't feel like this actually shaped or helped shape uh, anything about Jon Stewart. I think he's already fully formed, more or less, in this issue when we see him, and that's basically it. Uh, moving forward, so that was a, a 5 out of 10. We have Manhattan Project number 16. Uh, I am a huge fan of this book, as I've said many times on the podcast previously. I love Jonathan Hickman's take on this book. I love the artwork by Nick Patara. Um, I'm not a big fan of issues, what, I believe... 10 and 15 uh, those are kind of the the issues where things slow down we saw inside Oppenheimer's mind I, those issues I didn't care for but th- this is the type of issue I love because you have the projects have been betrayed everyone's been captured and uh, you have the idea that Oppenheimer can't figure out how all the projects were actually running or all the secrets so he's trying to figure some of this stuff out and he can't uh, but thankfully he still has his prisoners and there's some great, great elements in the prison. You see though, everyone prisoned, you have Groves and Ron Braun having a, a very interesting kind of interaction. You have Feynman and, uh, Albrecht Einstein, uh, basically still under, under drugs. You have Dalian, the, the one who's kind of always the most coherent. Uh, you have Ustinov, uh, the mind in a jar, um, you have some interesting threatening of a brain here uh, by Piranha. Uh, you have Groves being taken away by Westmoreland uh, for more um, um, basically torture. You have Feynman and uh, Albert Einstein in the past traveling through this uh, different reality. And I love, love, love that Einstein has a chainsaw with E equals MC squared written on it. It's freaking awesome. Um, and it's a great idea here that like they are in the what they're used to doing is playing God. Anyways, here they get attacked by this monster. Einstein attacks the monster. And, um, you know, they, 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 it's great here too, because, um, <laughs> Feynman at one moment, uh, Einstein is being captured by this monster and Feynman has an opportunity to destroy the monster. And he actually is like, sometimes I don't like the way you talk to me, doctor. And this is all under his breath. Maybe some slight adjustments would make you less abusive. A little disfigurement, maybe a slight limp. And then he just ends up killing the monster and saving Einstein completely. But uh, it's quite interesting. And um, it's an interesting flashback. And it's and you're like, well, what's that? What's the importance of this flashback? Well, it's because this this uh, this door, the doorway that Einstein and, his, and Feynman have been using to travel between realities and dimensions, uh, there's a time lock on it, basically. And that after the time lock opens, even if they're not there, and so now there seems to be a monster that's going to be coming out in the next issue, and really interesting to see what happens uh, to the captors of the, those in the Manhattan Projects. I'm also wondering if we're going to see some more of Laka in the next issue. Um, I really hope that dog's still alive. Uh, this was a, an immense read. It definitely felt like we got a lot more into in terms of you know uh, the continuity, seeing what could happen in the future. I love the golden keys, uh, those quotes that we get from the uh, the Feynman archives, uh, which definitely gives you a sense of something bigger is happening coming up, or uh, there's uh, there is a plan in place that Hickman really has going on in the storyline, and I cannot wait to see it reach fruition. Uh, I gave it a nine out of ten. Uh, next up. We have Nightwing number 25. Uh, this I gave a 6.5. This was primarily... The reason why I gave it a 6.5 was because of the artwork. 
I found the artwork to be uh, very uh, sloppy. Uh, I really didn't like it. Uh, if it wasn't for the artwork, I think this would have been a much stronger story. Um, again, this is a zero-year tie-in by Kyle Higgins and Will Conrad. Obviously, Higgins has been writing this book for a while, and Conrad is a really good artist, and I think I actually like him more than uh, the current artist on the Nightwing book. You have a flashback to Dick Grayson's time, you know, basically the t six years ago when the power went out, uh, he was in Gotham, obviously. Uh, he was at the movies because he had kind of gone out to go to see the movies on his own. Uh, you have some flashback here to when uh, he is part of the circus, and he's not really that good at working as a team sometimes. He's a bit of a showboater without meaning to be. Uh, he is the star, and he's kind of at times makes other people... Um, not really want to hang out with him as much so he decides he's going to go see the movies on his own and while he goes to the movies the power goes out and he's stuck in the city you have this this amygdala character uh, who I believe is a pre-existing character and they don't actually call him that per se but that who, that is who he is you have uh, Dick Grayson meeting up with some new friends and they kind of get to play as a team um, and trying to survive and fight against this this monstrous man that they come up against during this period and that's essentially the issue but it was a an interesting way of showing kind of the the joy for life that Dick Grayson does have uh some of the issues he was dealing with as a kid before he lost his parents um the sense of family and importance of the circus uh it was just a fun origin tale this felt like it added a little bit more to who Dick Grayson was in the new pre new sorry in the new 52 pre Batman era Whereas the, some of the other zero year uh, issues didn't feel like they really gave you a lot of context for why it is important and why I'm even reading it. I'm curious what the Flash tie is going to be, I think either next week or the week after, uh, just to see how they tie that in and how they bring them even into Gotham. And the last issue that I read was, uh, so that was a six and a half, so the last issue I read was Superior Spider-Man number 21. I continue to really enjoy this book. Um... I do think this maybe could have been a little bit better just because I was super excited to see Stunner again. And I thought, you know, it wasn't the greatest use of her. I really didn't like how she's portrayed. I thought um, the artwork actually made her look a little bit gross at times, especially in that cover. Instead of, she used to look very kind of simple line work and very, um, the idea was to make her look like a sexy bombshell. And here she almost looks a little too ripped and muscly and almost gross at times. Um, it, the issue is written by Dan Slott with artwork by Giuseppe Camincoli. Uh, we start the issue with, um, uh, you know, Betty Brant coming back and uh, to work for the Daily Bugle. And uh, right when, you know, she's like, you know, this everything feels different about the Bugle. And then the, the, the wall gets smashed in by a stunner who's like, where can I find Spider-Man? She's like, okay, now it feels like the Bugle. Um, and uh, then she, Robbie Robertson basically tells uh, Stunner that, you know, if you, if you get into trouble, uh, the Spider-Man will find you because of all the Spider-Bots. And I like the uh, kind of uh, the, the admission by slot through uh, different characters that the idea of the Spider-Man having these Spider-Bots is very uh, oppressive almost at times. And there's even a comment that Robbie makes that it's almost worse, worse than the NSA or anything like that. So the idea that these Spider-Bots are very much a presence and it's not like they're just kind of harmlessly out there. Everyone knows that they're out there and that's actually having an impact on 
people's lives and how they view Spider-Man, which is interesting. Um, you flash back to ESU. You have Dr. Lawan is very happy with himself because he has uh, made Peter Parker look a bit like a fool uh, because he has, quote-unquote, stolen uh, Dr. Otto Octavius' ideas and concepts. Uh, you have Peter trying to figure out a way to, to, to kind of get back to him, but then he, he takes off and um, he becomes Spider-Man. And a great sequence where he's climbing up a building. He's got the mechanical arms he's kind of built in right now. He's getting changed. His clothes are kind of everywhere. And then they go into the little backpack on Spider-Man's uh, backpack. Sorry, clothes are going into his backpack that he wears on his back, um, which I really liked. You have him contacted by Sp- uh, Spider Island. And they tell him about Stunner. So he's like, I'm going to go take the, care of this on my own. And then you have an interesting interaction with Stunner, which I thought would have been a little bit more interesting. Um, but it wasn't quite meant to be. You have Carly Cooper visiting the grave of Otto Octavius, who she knows to be Peter Parker, but then the grave is so shallow, I guess, that she, she falls in it, and there's no body, which definitely makes me wonder what the hell's going on. And then um, uh, you have you flash back to the fight with Spider-Man and, and Stunner, and uh, I... I really like Stunner, and I remember when the whole her as being this previous girlfriend of uh, Doc Ock who was given a VR construct uh, or like photon emitting form. I remember that by Tom DeFalco, and I that was maybe my first year of of uh, buying Amazing Spider-Man consistently. It was around issue I think four twenty seven or so, and I started buying with four eighteen, four nineteen. Um, so I I really like that Stunner is back, although I didn't think this was necessarily the best portrayal of her. Um, you had after Spider-Man's done with uh, with uh, Stunner, he kind of goes back to the school to school to confront uh, Doctor Lamaze, but then he has to save Doctor Lamaze when Stunner is not he's not done a good job uh, keeping you know keeping her down. Uh, Stunner then rips the mechanical arms off of Spider-Man, which was awesome and very cool moment. Because it's not like we haven't seen that before with Spider-Man doing that to Doc Ock before, so it's interesting to see Stunner do that to Doc Ock as Spider-Man, and then Spider-Man shuts down her uh, her form using his spider bots. He saves uh, Anna Maria, and uh, then he goes and he comes up with a way to basically put uh, put uh, Angelina at rest. So he uses the same VR construct. Uh, apparatus to create a vision of himself as the classic Doc Ock in the white suit that she would have known and um, I really really liked it and she's now in basically imprisoned in uh, Spider Island uh, which I thought was really cool and then you have he decides to use this the uh, the, the, um, the device to basically go to Dr. Lamaz and tell him that Dr. Lamaze is wrong and he hasn't stolen anything and uh, that Doc Ock has basically admitted that uh, it was Peter Parker who was his assistant originally Doc Ock's assistant and gave him some of the ideas so really he's not stealing anything from Doc Ock but instead Doc Ock stole from Peter. It's an interesting way for Doc Ock to come up with a, a non-violent resolution to his problem that would allow uh, himself to get the doctorate as Peter Parker because again he's not as, as much as he's very full of you know ego and pride about himself as being you know Doctor Octopus. At the same time, he is turning over a new leaf, so he's slightly discrediting himself or making himself look lesser, so that he can get his new life in order and progress. Which I thought was an interesting way to take it. Um, and I'm interested to see what happens with Carla Cooper because just when she's kind of got her journal, she's got a plan. 
um, what she's going to do and bring all of her, uh, her evidence to the Avengers. She's captured by Menace, and um, now she's brought towards the Green Goblin, who we're still wondering which version of the Green Goblin this is. And that is the issue. Um, I really liked it. Pretty good artwork, although, I mean, at times the stunner stuff wasn't as solid, but I gave it an 8 out of 10. It was definitely a, a good read. Uh, the issues I did not get a chance to look at this particular week include the following, and it's a large list, unfortunately. It's uh, Astro City number 6, Avengers Arena 17, Batman Arkham Unhinged number 20, Batman Little Gotham number 8, Ca Captain America Living Legend number 3, Cataclysm Ultimate Spider-Man number 1, Coffin Hill number 2, Constantine number 8, Deadpool 19, FPB... Uh, sorry, FBP, Federal Bureau of Physics number 5, Fearless Defenders 11, Injustice Gods Among Us Annual number 1, Justice League of America's Vibe number 9, Katana number 9, Marvel Knights X-Men number 1, Marvel Universe Avengers Assemble number 2, Savage Wolverine number 11, Smallville Season 11 number 19, Suicide Squad 25, uh, which is, I believe, a Forever Evil tie-in, Superboy number 25, Superior Foes of Spider-Man number 3, sorry, number 5, Superman Wonder Woman number 2 Thor God of Thunder number 15 Wolverine 11 World's Finest 17 X-Men Gold number 1 which was a big week obviously so that's our episode uh, with, in terms of looking forward to the future uh, in terms of our next episode I don't know what episode 120 is going to be yet uh, it's possible that uh, usually the odd numbered episodes are the reviews episodes and even number are special something else uh, this week there may not be another uh, special kind of one-off episode um, as I didn't get a chance to record anything with any of my guests or regular guests uh, this past weekend so there might be a solo show just a quick Heroclix episode with just myself uh, that might be coming up in a couple of days that might be episode 20 sorry 120 but uh, it also is likely that uh, next week's review episode will be 120 and so we'll just do a skip week in terms of the regular kind of focus issues uh, originally when I uh, back in August I was anticipating that it would go down to only having uh, two special kind of episodes like non-reviews episodes a month um, so far I've been pretty good about having three to four uh, but this week we may not have one um, looking forward to comics that are coming out uh, this coming week in two days, as well at least as I record this, coming out in two days. Um, before I actually get into that, I just want to say I finally received my journal by Frank Miller and uh, Klaus Janssen Omnibus. It's a reprinting of the original version. Um, not a big fan of the trade dress being a little bit different and not quite fitting. It doesn't look as good on the Omnibus shelf. Uh, also, I do like that it's not... I do like and I also don't like that it's doesn't have the, the, the faux black um, uh, cover mainly because and I believe the original one did and all the other reprints I believe are, all have the red sorry the black except for this one is full red and it has like Daredevil cover kind of um, illustrations by Frank Miller which are good but again not really uniform uh, although the recent Iron Man by Kirby Sixon Chen on the bus also had artwork but again that wasn't a reprinting of an older volume that was a new volume so I'm not really sure how I feel about that but the actual presentation of the material is gorgeous. Um, it looks really, really nice. Uh, the colors are corrected because I had the visionaries and I didn't realize how bad the colors were until I read this on the bus. Um, and there's some great bonus material as well. I also received my Aquaman by um, uh, the others, Trade Paperback Volume 2, which is really cool as well. Looking forward to this coming week. Uh, from DC, things that I'm looking forward to at least. There, I believe it, Batwoman number 25 is the first um, non- um, I forget the name of them, but 
the first new creative team uh, doing the issue. You have Forever's Evil, Forever Evil Rogues Rebellion number two. Um, let's see, you've got a trade paperback of Mad Presents Spy, to the, Spy versus Spy Fight at the Finish, which should be fun. Um, and not a lot of other major DC releases. Uh, then from, uh, let's see, Image, uh, not a lot of big releases, at least that I know of. Uh, Marvel-wise, uh, you have um, a new volume of the Epic Collections uh, for Amazing Spider-Man, which is coming out, which is exciting for those who are interested in the new Epic Collection line from Marvel. Uh, you also have uh, Avengers number 23, an Infinity crossover coming out. Uh, you also have uh, Indestructible Hulk 15, Fantastic Four 14, Daredevil 33 as that gets closer and closer to the ending, Cataclysm Ultimus number 1, uh, Cable and x 416, Long Shot Saves Marvel Universe number two, which hopefully is better than issue number one. Uh, Secret Avengers gets um, involved in the Infinity uh, crossover. Uh, you have Superior Spider-Man Annual number one, which they keep saying does count and does matter. So I'm excited about reading that. Uh, you have Superior Spider-Man Team Up number six. I'm excited to see what that what uh, new direction that takes. Um, you've got Uncanny X-Men fourteen, X-Men seven. Uh, I'm interested in those just because it's the first post-Battle of the Atom issues. Um, what I'm super excited, though, is uh, both the X-Men uh, Volume 1 Primer uh, trade by Wood and Quipel. It'll be nice to have that on my shelf. But also X-Men Skinning of Souls, which is um, a trade paperback reprinting some of, I think, X-Men 17 to 24 from the 90s. Uh, this is important to me because one of the first issues of X-Men I ever remember reading was X-Men number 20, I believe from 92 or 93. Um, to this date, I've, I don't think I've ever truly read the issue, and this is why. Um, I had this issue, and I got it because a, a kid in my class at the time, I was, let's see, probably eight or nine, in my class, uh, he was using it for some sort of project, and it was he actually cut out pieces of the issue. So there's some artwork in the issue that I've never seen, uh, or at least don't remember ever having seen, because he was like, "I don't, I don't want this. Do you want this?" I'm like, "Yes, that looks awesome. I'd love to read this issue." So I remember the issue really well. It's where Revanche first shows up. So we have the idea of the two Psylocks. Um, there's a lot of kind of filler, which is not surprising for X-Men comics of this period. Uh, a lot of character stuff, not a lot of actual action. Um, I ate it up as a kid. There's some ridiculous stuff that I, to this date, still make fun of and still talk about with, like, Nate, etc. Uh, there's this great moment where um, uh, Psylocke has been trying to hit on Scott, and I don't really know where that came from or why it started happening, but at one point he's working uh, in the hangar on the Blackbird or something else in there, and he, uh, he collapses on this ladder and they kind of go tumbling down, and she's in like this ridiculous dress, and he has like motor oil and like on his face, and she like licks it off. And I remember as a kid being like, "That's hot," and I'm like, "That's disgusting and really like not good for anybody." She's probably dead. Um, it's, but I'm excited that I can finally read these issues. That issue I've never really read, so I'm really excited about it. It's a nice little trade. I'm I'm really excited about. Uh, trade paperbacks when they do go back and collect this material so i'm really pumped for that myself so i'll be uh picking that up for sure this week anyways thank you for joining me for uh, episode 119 of comic shenanigans uh for any questions or anything you'd like to let us know at the show you can email us at comic shenanigans at gmail.com you can like us on facebook uh rate the show on itunes please and uh you can also post in the hg realms threads uh that we have for the episodes anyways Thank you very much for joining me for this episode, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.